1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was. There has been growing pressure to delay the expansion of medical assistance in dying, or MAID. While the governing Trudeau Liberals initially said it would be difficult to override that provision, on Thursday it was announced they would try to seek a delay in expanding medical assistance in dying to people whose sole underlying condition is a mental disorder. Earlier this month, Libby spoke with the head of a group of senior psychiatrists, who also want a delay while more safeguards are put in place. Libby talked about the issue with our Zoomer squad on Monday, ahead of the Liberals' announcement that they would try and delay the expansion of criteria around doctor-assisted deaths. David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. John Wright is Executive Vice President at Maru Public Opinion. And Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operator officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, a new vision of Aging.
2: We haven't heard a lot from them, although CARP has been involved with the whole made topic for many years. And although we're supportive of it in general, uh, we really take caution when we see groups like the uh, like the Canadian psychiatrists uh, asking us to slow down a little bit and, and make sure that there are good, uh, good guidelines in place
3: i don't know the ins and outs of the daily machinations on this. all I know is that when Canadians were polled on this years ago and even the most- ro- uh, the most robust polling recently, the issue was acceptable under you know made was acceptable if it was dealing with imminent death, not the quality of life and that's a clear distinction we have to mean I mean you and I can you know people can argue that a Terrible quality of life if you have um, terrible depression or dementia or some other incapacitating illness that has to do with the quality of life. It is something which has got to have a lot more safeguards put onto it. And I don't think it's anything that people really bought into uh, at the beginning of this. So I throw it back to the panel. I mean, the debate to me is really about the imminence of death versus the quality of life. And I think that right now most Canadians are on the side of those who are terminal or imminent death, as opposed to simply having a bad quality of life discussion.
4: So we're heading into the holidays. I think that, you know, I do see a few people wearing masks when I'm out and about. But I think for the most part, people are behaving in a pandemic over mode or pandemic not a big deal mode. I can tell you that You know, every week I hear about somebody either uh, in the building here or somebody in my wider tennis family who's got COVID. And uh, we have these respiratory flus and hospitals really go on low gear as of, you know, next week.
2: It's a a real fear that many of us have that we're uh, stopping protecting ourselves. And, and others and, and, uh, whether it's not wearing the mask or not getting, uh, uh, flu shots, which, uh, and the uptake is very low this year, especially in that middle age group of, of 18 to 64 year olds where it's way down. So the opportunity to spread the flu among those who are most vulnerable. And what we don't seem to have gotten across to people is that uh, by wearing masks, by getting your flu shot, by taking uh, precautions, uh, even if you don't care about yourself, you're prote- uh, protecting those around you and especially those uh, seniors and others who are really uh, susceptible.
5: I'm in situations where sometimes I'm wearing my mask, sometimes I'm not. But I think part of the problem is that if people perceive that they've either already had it or they've already been vaccinated and that they don't have it now, be it a cold, be it flu, be it whatever, then they perceive, may I underline the word perceive, it may not be true, that they cannot give it to anybody else because they don't have it themselves. And, um, I think that's a big inhibiting factor. So if we've already been over COVID, I'm not saying we have, if the worst is over, if the new modifications or the new versions of COVID aren't as lethal as the first one, and we now have this sort of herd immunity, maybe not total, but much more widespread than before, it's easy to kind of get sloppy about it. And if you go by your day to day, you walk out the door and down the street, you're not wearing a mask, you go into a store, a, and you don't need a mask, you go into store B and you do need a mask, you sort of get adaptive And it's, you know, either yes or no, but you kind of get sloppy with, you know, being very vigilant about it. I think that's just human nature.
1: David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. John Wright, Executive Vice President at Maru Public Opinion. And Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. A new vision of aging. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. If you live or drive near Eglinton Avenue in Midtown, Toronto, then you know firsthand there seems to be no end in sight to the construction of the overdue and over-budget Eglinton Crosstown LRT. What Toronto residents have experienced was confirmed by a leaked document last week, which shows the Provincial Transportation Agency, Metrolinx, believes the construction consortium building the light rail line lacks a credible plan toward the completion of the project. Two city councillors, Mike Cole and Josh Matlow, are demanding a public inquiry, while the mayor and provincial transportation minister are urging Torontonians to continue being patient. Libby spoke with those councillors, along with Maureen Sirwa, chair of the Eglinton Way BIA and president at Toronto Association of Business Improvement Areas.
4: Let us begin with you, Mike. So what made you call for a public inquiry? I mean, to be fair, those things always take a really long time, maybe longer than the construction of the LRT. Well,
6: Libby, they don't take long. Look, Ottawa just did one. It took them a couple of months, and they got to the bottom of that boondoggle in Ottawa. So that's a, a bogus argument about this. You know, what's taking time is 11 years to build this, boondoggle, and they're covering it up. They're covering up the fact they don't know how to fix the problem. Hmm. There's a gigantic cover-up going on, and the provincial government, Metrolinx, Mulroney, the transportation minister, they're all covering up this incredible waste of taxpayers' dollars and the devastation it's causing to businesses all across, you know, Six BIAs are being destroyed uh, and 50,000 homeowners can't get out of the driveway. That's the thing that's got to be uncovered, and we need to get some answers.
5: Well, you know, the, the only reason that we even have verification of what a mess it's become is because, as Mike said, a whistleblower sent us a leaked document that demonstrated that there are a whole like, it's a litany of failures, you know, the cost has ballooned yet another billion dollars. They don't know how they're going to transfer uh, the platform at Young and Eglinton. They're, they're still not making as much progress as they should have on the station box. They don't know how to run the trains and certain curves. There's all sorts of stuff that they haven't resolved, they haven't figured out, and they have not been transparent with the public about not only what their challenges are, but You know, they first announced that it would be completed back in 2020, then 2021, then 2022. And now what is very evident is they have no idea when residents and businesses are going to see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Now, the real life consequences of this multi-year delay is that we have businesses, business owners and their employees who not only are struggling, but many have lost their livelihoods because of this. And they're just hanging on by a thread. And that's why they need real support, real financial support from the government, as Councillor Cole and I are requesting, but also residents who are not just complaining about traffic. Their neighborhoods are literally dysfunctional. And they have just been treated like collateral damage by this government and this provincial transit agency. And it's time for answers. It's time for real financial support. You know, and the reason we're asking for a public inquiry, is not just to get answers about Eglinton, but we're also aware that the Ontario line, other provincial projects are about to be constructed. And we don't want to see the same and doggle happen on all these other projects as has happened so evidently.
7: Metrolinx has made it clear right from the beginning that they would not provide direct compensation to businesses and I with my colleagues in the in the b i a s and for the businesses that are not represented by b i a s this is wrong. There should be some direct compensation to the businesses who have suffered um, losses through the many years of this construction, and the delay of the completion of the line is only going to amplify the loss to these businesses because businesses need to have their customers able to come and shop or attend their medical appointments or go to a restaurant. They need accessibility and they need parking and they need to have the street clean and ready to serve. So, there needs to be compensation. And we've learned through the pandemic that there are ways to compensate businesses who have been impacted financially by the disaster of COVID. So there are ways to compensate businesses, but there is not the political will to do so.
1: Maureen Sirwa, chair of the Eglinton Way BIA and president at Toronto Association of Business Improvement Areas, and before her, city councillors Josh Matlow and Mike Cole. Later in the week after that conversation, city councillors voted in favour of an independent review of the Eglinton LRT, but not until it's completed. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Charles Souza, no longer a recovering politician. We discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of fight back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. On Tuesday, our recovering politicians talked about one of their own who has decided successfully to get back into politics. Charles Souza was elected in Monday's by election as the liberal MP for Mississauga Lakeshore, which, as Libby pointed out, means his recovery from politics is derailed. This is among the topics the recovering politicians discussed, which also included the threat by federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to withdraw from the New Democrats agreement with the minority Trudeau liberals if the liberals don't do more to fix the health care crisis. Janet Ecker is a former Ontario PC cabinet minister. Gerard Kennedy is a former Ontario Liberal cabinet minister and federal MP. And Sherry DeNovo is a former Ontario NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. Libby asked Janet first if the Mississauga Lakeshore by-election is a reflection of the national electorate
8: i don't think it's a referendum i think every by-election has its own uh, narrative and, and unique circumstances i think it had a lot to do with the fact that charles Sousa has run in that area before He was a very strong, you know, very good profile as a finance minister, uh, running again. He's a very presentable, you know, personable, good guy, if I do say so myself. So the fact that he would win was not a surprise to me. I think the uh, difference between him and the Conservative, I think, is a cause for concern, as is the difference between um, with the NDP, because they didn't do very well in that riding either. But I think it's too early, and there wasn't enough sort of overall coverage in the riding to really, you know, on, on issues related to the riding, to really make a, a sweeping judgment for any of the three parties. Gerard, what do you think?
9: Well, I, I, don't, I don't think it is uh, sweeping. I think, uh, you know, at different times, by elections certainly can take the pulse of where people are thinking. Uh, we don't have a Polyev wave as yet. I think that's relatively clear. Uh, perhaps, uh, Mr. Trudeau, the Prime Minister, had a bump because of, I think, his more thoughtful testimony a week or two ago. And, um, you know, there may be a few other things that the government can see, but it's, you know, this is sort of a swing riding in the sense that it's gone between parties, but probably not as strong a litmus test uh in terms of where people are at. And some of the other topics you want to discuss, there's lots of reasons for people to be at least somewhat uh, discontented and... um You know, I think it it, it talks also to Charles's appeal, perhaps to the the power of fight back in terms of uh, getting (laughs) people elected. But I think there's probably a limit to the lessons that that can be drawn. But I don't think I think the liberals will be smiling for at least a day uh,
4: on this. (laughs) The first, as far as I remember, public statement by Jagmeet Singh that he might get out of this agreement if the government doesn 't do what he wants this time on health care, what do you make of that?
10: Well, certainly um, the government needs to sit down with the premiers that 's pretty clear, but uh, you know the the, the messages that i 've heard from the from the from Trudeau is that 's in the offing. My concern is that we have a government in Ontario that 's already shortchanged the health care system significantly almost a billion dollars worth. Um, so uh, I don't know. It's it's kind of fishy when a government that short shortchanges in its own budget, its own health care will look for more money from the from the Fed. So I think there's, you know, here in Ontario, that can't help but be noticed. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting that Jack come out with this. Uh, this being the, you know, the litmus test. I think there are, are personally as a recovering politician, <laughs> there are many other litmus tests that I. I was kind of hoping he'd come out and and say something of, as dramatic about, but. But good, you know. Yeah, they should, and uh, and but I mean, I think they will. Um, so there's that. Uh, and I also think that it shows uh, our federal, uh, you know, our our conservative government here in a particularly bad light. I don't think they have a leg to stand on when it comes to asking the federal government for more more money. So there's that.
8: I mean, money is certainly part of the solution. There's no question. We're seeing that in the in the pediatric uh, issue that's being happening across the country where because of medical advances in the treatment of children, they reduced the number of beds because they didn't need them then, which was fine. But now that we've got a surge, it gets back to that point about no, you know, very little flexibility in the health system. And I'm on the board of the Canadian Medical Association, and our president, Dr. LaFontaine, Dr. Alika LaFontaine, has been very clear that, yeah, money's there, but until there is um, uh, more change in how that money is being spent more money is only going to replicate the problems that we've got.
1: Janet Ecker, former Ontario PC Cabinet Minister, Sherry Denovo is a former Ontario NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient, and Gerard Kennedy is a former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister and Federal Member of Parliament. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We also heard from Charles Souza himself about his by-election win and his plans for the future while serving Mississauga Lakeshore in Ottawa. Libby spoke with Charles for the first time since he resigned from Fight Back's Recovering Politicians panel to become a federal politician.
11: It's a bellwether riding. I mean, it moves back and forth. Uh, you know, there are some years it's held more prominently by one party or another. Uh, but it does fluctuate. But people here do take note of who the individual is and what the parties stand for. And I think they want a more positive tone. They're really not keen on some of the reckless uh, or gimmicky stuff that's coming out uh, by some. And they want to be sensitive about what it means for their lives and ensuring that we can afford the programs that matter to them.
4: The turnout was tiny, 26%. uh, You know, that is not good news.
11: And was not unexpected. We always were fearful that it would be a low turnout, just as the municipal ones were pretty low. So it's a concern. We tried our utmost to try to, you know, garner some excitement and pull the boat. But yeah, and, and the weather held, which was good, because it could have been worse. But in the end, uh, certainly the sample of the size of the people that voted is very telling in terms of a general election. And I'm I'm very encouraged by the outcome.
4: The thing that everybody is kind of whispering about now is like, oh, does he have some kind of uh, promise or side deal with Justin Trudeau about some kind of job that you'll get when you get there? Uh, Maybe something in the next cabinet shuffle?
11: The priority now is for me to just represent the community. I'm not making any deals. I'm sure I've appreciated the uh, outpouring of support of members and colleagues Mm -hmm. now, I guess I can call them from the house over the last, last number of months. While I'm on your show, I was getting calls saying, hey, why don't you consider running? Why don't you consider running? And and, and that was very touching, uh, but I wanted to make it for the right reasons. And my wife and I had to deliberate over it. And our kids, you know, they're adults now. So we have some flexibility. Um, that's a priority is just to give back and, and be a strong voice for the community. We know that rising costs in healthcare is a concern. And we want to make certain that people are served, and with uh, you know with the dynamics of aging in our community, even more of an issue. And so, I think the provinces are certainly mindful of that, and and the federal government's mindful. That's why they want accountability in terms of the transfer payments that they make to the provinces. I was calling for it as well, and we next we we, we appreciate that we want the monies to go to where the needs are most, and. Uh, uh, there needs to be accountability and uh, there needs to be changes in the way we serve and I think on your program we've talked a lot about that and uh, institutional care is not necessarily what we want to see. We want more home care, we want more people living with some degree of respect and dignity and getting uh, you know, proper care, especially those that are in acute positions, to minimize the impact of them staying yeah. in a long-term care bed uh, would be beneficial for them. But ultimately, that will have to be the case in which you know, and we need PSWs and others to be well-served, and we need to attract them. So that's going to be an ongoing debate. I just got elected only yesterday, so I have to, you know, dig in deep, more deeply in terms of where we stand and what the amounts of transfers are being requested and what does it mean in terms of the, uh, the federal government's use of those funds. Because we saw what happened with the pandemic, and it wasn't very, you know, there wasn't accountability. And, and we want to make certain that our people, those that are, pay, are taxpayers, there's only one, that they get well-served by by what they do.
1: Charles Souza, MP-elect for the Federal Riding of Mississauga Lakeshore and former Ontario Finance Minister and Fight Back panelist. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. David in Toronto phoned about the ongoing delays with the Eglinton LRT.
3: I live in the Bayview and Eglinton area. We've been affected by this traffic for Lord knows how long. It appears as though some of the intersections are starting to be fully operational, but no one is making that information available to the drivers that are taking the shortcuts through. So once somebody takes a shortcut, if they perceive that it's going to be faster for them, they're going to keep on doing that. Probably even ten years after this thing is finished. I noticed that just last week they finished painting Mount Pleasant. They have to paint the lines to make the intersection fully operational. Um, They finished. The city has finished doing their work on the uh, the bridge at Leslie. So that is now full two lanes going both ways. Um, You know, some people just don't know about this stuff, and they're taking. They're still doing their shortcuts.
1: Clay in Ajax also called about the LRT delays.
3: I've been fortunate. I haven't been in the West End of Toronto for three
5: or four years. But even back then, with that rapid transit, it was a nightmare. Once upon a time, Libby, they had a certain date. They had to finish a job. If they weren't done in time, then they had to pay a penalty. I mean, like right now, there are $7 billion and something over budget. And How far beyond the expected date are they out I mean, just think what that $7 million could do for our homeless people. But, I mean, it's crazy, and there's no there's no end in sight now, Libby.
1: Barry phoned from North York in our segment on phone, email, and text message scams.
5: I was on social media a while ago, and they said, if you take your, once the call comes in, don't say a thing, you know, um, you press the asterisk sign three times or the number sign three times, and it messes up their systems.
6: Is there any um, truth to that?
9: No. I mean, I've, I've heard any number of different techniques for messing them up, up to and including an air horn, which I really wouldn't use recommend using at your house. Um, but truth of the matter is, there's no way to verify or validate that any of that technology works. They're all using different tools, and those tools are
0: constantly evolving. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call
1: of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Daryl in Toronto, who is concerned about strong mayor powers for Toronto's mayor and John Tory's comments that nobody cares about this.
2: I think Mayor Tory needs to understand that a lot of people are concerned about it. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be talking about it. I think it's really absolutely wrong. Part of it. Is there not a section of it that says as long as it agrees with the province yes, and their agenda? So this is just another way for Doug Ford to mess with Toronto, to, to manipulate Tory so that he can deflect. You know, when Tory's doing something that he wants done with the strong layer of powers, it's on Tory. When it's not what Doug Ford wants, he can squash
1: it. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at four one six three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up The rest of The Best of Fight Back.
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer.